for me, it's really a no-brainer that we provide access um, for children to get the, the care they need because they're the future of our nation. You know, we may be deeply divided on health care, but what if we are or could be unified on health? Those countries, essentially with the strongest social compact, have the best health. Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Jyoti Jastrasarya. And I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. This is the fourth episode of a 10-part series. We encourage you to start with our short trailer, Introducing Breached, so that you have a better sense of our project. Each episode of this podcast explores a different area that is commonly considered part of a social contract. So far, we've released episodes about community, dissent, and safety. And today, we're talking about health. In our episode today, instead of hearing from people on different sides of the political debate, we wanted to briefly touch on the consequences that this hyperpartisan moment has on the health of Americans and explore whether there are ways to reimagine and reframe a social contract of health that challenges the status quo, adopts new tools for substantive change, and invites new voices and perspectives to the table. The U.S. Constitution does not include an explicit legal right to health care. In fact, this episode and the three after it will each explore a different issue that was left out of the Bill of Rights, at least in any obvious form. Health, education, employment, and housing. These original omissions have subsequently left us with a debate about what full membership in an American social contract really looks like without a national guarantee to these arguably basic rights. The right of health has been the focus of significant national attention for the last century. While the UK and other European countries adopted national healthcare systems in the early 20th century, an American national healthcare program was left out of the New Deal efforts under Roosevelt and Fair Deal efforts under Truman. Medicare and Medicaid, both introduced in the 1960s, were created to serve the health needs of elderly and poor communities, but stopped short of creating a federal right for all Americans. Nixon's efforts to expand healthcare faced Democratic pushback, Clinton's efforts faced Republican pushback, and Obama's successful efforts to pass the Affordable Care Act have been slowly chipped away by legal challenges and strong political opposition. One seeming exception to the political warfare was CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program designed to cover uninsured children, which was passed into law in 1997 and sponsored by Democrat Ted Kennedy and Republican Orrin Hatch. Six months ago, on September 30, 2017, CHIP expired. Caught up in the government shutdown that occurred earlier this year, CHIP remained unauthorized for almost four months, and Congress finally extended it on January 22, 2018. During the height of uncertainty surrounding CHIP's fate, we reached out to Dr. Lisa Costello, a pediatrician and internist in West Virginia. So the Children's Health Insurance Program actually has a pretty strong connection to my home state, West Virginia, because our former Senator Jay Rockefeller was rather instrumental in the formation of the CHIP program over 20 years ago. And we have many children who benefit and families that benefit from CHIP. And I say families, too, because it puts a lot of strain on parents if their children um, don't have health care. In my state, we have about 48,000 children who are enrolled in the Children's Health Insurance Program in one form or another. So it has a profound impact on the kids I care for particularly when they come into the inpatient setting 
and people are always worried about the bills that might be associated with that. Those I know that the individuals who are covered with CHIP, that's one area that they can have less of a concern about because they know it's going to be covered and they can then focus their attention on what I feel is one of the most important things, which is them getting better from whatever um, ailment they may have. We were struck that this debate around CHIP was happening in the first place. For 20 years, CHIP has been somewhat untouchable, even as the debate around the Affordable Care Act revealed deeply divided opinions around the government's role in providing health care, there seemed to be some unspoken bipartisan agreement that health care for kids whose family couldn't afford it was a non-negotiable priority. As Lisa said, CHIP seems like a no-brainer, something as close to apolitical in our current hyperpartisan time as possible. You know, have children, they're our future. They're the future workforce, they're the future defense, they're um, the future innovators, they're the future teachers, the future lawyers, you name it, they're our future. And, you know, we know that CHIP in particular, you know, it works in collaboration with other healthcare programs such as Medicaid to cover children um, that, particularly for CHIP, that are in working families, but they are not eligible for Medicaid because they make too much money. And so, you know, we know that children who don't have access to health care, they have um, higher medical needs, you know, they tend to get sick more often because they're not seeking preventive health care. And then also their parents tend to miss more work because they have to care for their, for their children. And so for me, it's really a no-brainer that we provide access um, for children to get the, the care they need because they're the future of our nation. And although CHIP was finally renewed for 10 years through 2027, when we spoke with Lisa, that was still an open question. She described the uncertainty as the biggest problem for her patients and their families. I think the word uncertainty is the big thing. I have patients who come into me and they just don't know. And as a physician, it's hard for me to tell them because I don't know either. I tell them that I hope and I'm doing everything that I can from my role, you know, reaching out to, to my legislators, trying to inform the public, sharing tweets as a hashtag tweetiatrician to inform the public about the importance of this program because I see these stories firsthand and I see the individuals that come to seek care, whether it's for preventative care um, or whether it's getting treatment for one of the illnesses that they may be managing. So without CHIP, I think that families are just uncertain. They're unsure if they're going to be able to provide coverage for their kids. They're unsure if they're going to be able to get the medicines that they need. They're unsure if they're going to be able to afford um, that hospital stay if, if, heaven forbid, they needed to seek care in a hospital setting. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in that, I think, provides a lot of angst among families. And, you know, they may be trying to determine how they're going to pay for their next meal or to cover the electricity bill as we've had a pretty cold winter. Um, and then this just kind of adds another stress onto um, how are we going to provide coverage for our children. One of the things that I found most compelling in our conversation with Lisa was the fact that despite her extraordinarily busy schedule within the clinic, 
She also had to be up to date on the shifting political discussions in Washington and the impact that any changes to CHIP would have on her patients and their families. I believe that all healthcare professionals, including physicians, have a role of, of advocate, and I try to use my voice and my experiences to inform those who make policy to help better shape the, the lives of the individuals I care for. Physicians needing to be advocates suggests that our healthcare system in its current form isn't meeting its goals, and that frontline healthcare professionals like Lisa know that something needs to change. This is the same thing that our next guest, Rebecca Oni, co-founder and CEO emerita of Health Leads, noticed in the mid-1990s when she was a college freshman exploring the limitations of the healthcare system at then Boston City Hospital. I spent... Um, about six months just, you know, wandering the hallways of this really extraordinary, chaotic institution, having conversations with physicians and nurses, asking them if you had unlimited resources, what's the one thing you would give your patients? And heard the same story again and again, which, you know, honestly, at this point in time, we've heard thousands, probably tens of thousands of times um, where the you know, physicians would say every day we have patients that come into the clinic, the child has an asthma exacerbation, we're prescribing a controller medication, but we know that the real issue is that this child's living with 12 other people in a dilapidated brownstone with asbestos and mildew, and we don't ask about those issues because there's nothing we can do. This didn't seem like the right answer to Rebecca, and since then she launched and expanded Health Leads, formerly Project Health, an organization that connects low-income patients to the basic resources that they need to be healthy. Health Aids was really born of those conversations and the question of, you know, could we, could we in some ways appropriate the infrastructure of the healthcare system, the waiting room, the electronic medical record, you know, even the um, caregivers in that system to really be oriented much more fundamentally towards health um, rather than just the management of disease. And our, you know, work over 20 years was both on kind of asking that bigger picture question of what what is the purpose of our healthcare system and is it in fact designed to maximize health? but also to really demonstrate that you could operationalize what it meant to address the realities of people's lives and that that was something that you could build into clinical practice as part of the healthcare system that patients experience every day in this country. We asked Rebecca to give us an example of an interaction between a patient and a Health Leads volunteer. She started to share the story of a patient at Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. In the course of that routine screening, there was a patient, we'll call John, who came in, and um, he was about to see his primary care physician. It looked like he was going to need heart surgery. And in the course of his um, preoperative visit with his PCP, he um, completed the screening form. And you know, one of the questions was, are you worried about being able to pay your bills? And he said yes. And, you know, as we worked with him more closely, it turned out that he had actually just lost his job and um, he and his wife were making really difficult trade-offs between paying their heating bill in the winter in Boston and paying actually for his wife's medication. And, um, you know, one of the things we learned is that he and his wife were really anxious about the fact that he was about to have heart surgery but be discharged to a home that didn't have heat in the middle of the winter. 
And so, you know, we were able to get him connected, um, his wife connected to Medicare Part D to assist with her medications and get them connected to LIHEAP, which is a resource um, to be able to provide heating assistance. But I think what was most powerful about the whole story was that the primary care physician, you know, was just really honest and said, like, I never would have known. He's been my patient for 20 years. And honestly, like, I assumed he had everything he needed. And, you know, we have data showing that up to 40% of patients who screen positive for an unmet resource need, food, housing, heating, actually have commercial insurance. And, I, you know, I think it just reveals the extent to which so many folks in this country are really making difficult trade-offs um, on a regular basis. And again, you know, how do we have a healthcare system that's designed to, to recognize that that's the case? And, not draw the boundaries of health at, you know, we successfully completed the open heart surgery, but, you know, redraw those boundaries to recognize that if he goes home and there's no heat, the surgery is not going to have the impact. And, you know, that patient will continue to accrue costs to the healthcare system over time. Our conversation with Rebecca revealed that there are significant barriers to health that have nothing to do with the political debates that are raging in Washington and across the country, and little to do with the day-to-day decisions that doctors are making within their clinics. Studies show that only about 10% of health outcomes are tied to clinical care, and up to 70% are tied to social and environmental factors. What's particularly interesting is that people seem to know this intuitively. We just haven't yet figured out what to do with it. We actually began this experiment over the summer where we hired a polling firm to do focus groups in communities around how did they talk about health and healthcare. And you know, this was right in the midst of the, you know, fierce, divisive, uh, very public battles about the future of the Affordable Care Act. And we, we sat with folks in four different communities, including Charlotte, North Carolina, and there were two focus groups that we did there, one with African-American Democratic women and one with white Republican women, and um, asked them, if you had $100, how would you spend it to create health in your community? And there were two things that were really remarkable. The first is that both groups intuitively understood and allocated their dollars accordingly, where one-third of their budget went to traditional health care, hospitals and clinics, and two-thirds went to affordable housing, affordable child care, access to healthy food, transportation, utilities. And you know, I think that's partly because like those aren't just statistics, that's people's lived experience. Like they know what creates health. And then second, what was equally remarkable was that across those two groups, they literally had identical allocations of their resources. They both wanted to spend 19% on affordable housing. They both wanted to spend 25% on access to healthy food. They both wanted to spend 14% on access to affordable child care. And, you know, I, I think it kind of begs the question, you know, we may be deeply divided on health care, but what if we are or could be unified on health? And we're just not having the conversation that allows us to understand that shared set of beliefs and values. Of course, even Rebecca's work has faced limitations, namely the fact that social services and community resources themselves are limited. You know, I think in the work of Health Leads, one of the things we really discovered was, you know, how do you triangulate between what, what patients know they need to be healthy, what physicians and the care team believe are essential for the patient to be able to manage their disease or achieve health, and then candidly, what's available 
in the community. And, you know, I don't think there's probably a community in the United States that has sufficient affordable housing, for example. And so, you know, one of the really kind of tricky issues that we negotiated over time at Health Leads is, you know, how do you you know, if a patient presents, for example, with an, uh, an unmet housing need, they're about to be homeless or are homeless, but there's not sufficient affordable housing, you know, how do you work with them to understand other ways to be able to secure health, even in the face of the absence of those resources? And I think that's one of the the real kind of next horizons of our healthcare system is understanding its role and responsibility, not just relative to the patients who come in the door, but relative to the health of the communities um, in which they're located and the formidable resources that the healthcare system can and should bring to bear in order to elevate health, while also recognizing that it's critical that the role of healthcare be right sized relative to that of community-based organizations and other actors that know intimately the needs of communities. Our next guest, Dr. Tony Iton, Senior Vice President for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment, focuses his work on health and communities, trying to bridge the very gap that Rebecca mentions. Uh, about eight years ago, I was asked to come help uh, run a unique initiative at the California Endowment, which is really a, a public health foundation in California. And the focus is on trying to invest in the so-called social determinants of health, trying to get to the underlying root causes of what's making some populations sick, um, in the face of uh, essentially a, a broad array of uh, barriers to opportunity. And the initiative is called Building Healthy Community, and it's a billion-dollar, 10-year initiative uh, that involves 14 low-income California communities. And the goal is to measurably improve their health status um, with only one caveat, and that is that we can't spend a nickel on health care. The caveat is very interesting because while it seems counterintuitive when you first hear it, the focus outside the traditional healthcare system actually mirrors the way that the women in Charlotte, North Carolina would allocate funding. So we know what the recipe is for better health. If we want better health, we have to invest more in social services and social benefits. And those social services and benefits are essentially what amounts to prevention. And other countries around the world spend more on prevention. We don't. We spend most of our money on treatment uh, and generally trying to uh, catch up with disease once it's already taken hold. Those countries, essentially with the strongest social compact, have the best health. Tony went on to explain how the United States' relatively weak social compact across policy areas has a profound impact on our health outcomes. When you're poor in this country, there are pretty profound social consequences to being poor. And those social consequences include having a difficult time accessing health care, having a difficult time finding neighborhoods where there are good schools, good jobs, good transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, it's not surprising to those of us who do this research that the U.S. actually has poor health as a consequence. 
And the interesting fact is it's not just low-income people. Uh, relatively high-income people in this country suffer from relatively poor health compared to the rest of the world. So we think that the lack of a meaningful social compact creates unnecessary stressors in the lives of people across the income spectrum. And that unnecessary stress drags down our health status. Tony sees this in his everyday work in California, where populations in the same city have vastly different experiences with health. Given the fact that, you know, in the same city, you're experiencing presumably the same policies, there's the same government, but in one neighborhood, you'll have a life expectancy in the high 80s. In another neighborhood, you have a life expectancy in the, in the 60s. And the only rational way to understand that difference is that there are differences in power across these communities and certain groups, and uh, those groups are oftentimes uh, segregated in certain neighborhoods, lack essentially the ability to hold systems accountable uh, to deliver essentially the services and resources that they need for their well-being. And so you can have the same city but very different opportunity structures in that city. And those barriers to opportunity are quite rigid. So building healthy communities is, it, it basically is built around this idea that differences in power drive differences in opportunity and differences in opportunity essentially uh, predict differences in health status. So our goal is to build social, political, and economic power in a critical mass of people living in those communities and allowing them to be able to essentially hold systems accountable for more equitable access to opportunity. What does that look like? It means that we organize people. Uh, they essentially build their power and then they decide what systems they want to tackle. And typically those systems are the education system or the criminal justice system or housing. Um, all of the so-called social determinants of health are legitimate targets, if you will, for organized communities that are trying to hold those systems more accountable. question going forward is how to reconceptualize the healthcare system in a way that reflects the lessons that we've learned about the connection between social needs and health, the importance of prevention, and power imbalances in communities. Given the dominant narrative around healthcare and the history of national policymaking that we described at the beginning of this episode, the natural place to implement these lessons might again be at the national level. Yeah, I think uh, a national healthcare law would be the, the most obvious place to sort of integrate a prevention frame. So here's, here's the basic problem with our healthcare system. Our healthcare system doesn't have incentives for prevention. Our healthcare system has incentives for sickness. The sicker somebody is, the more the healthcare provider gets paid to manage that illness. And we don't get paid for wellness for the most part. What a national healthcare system could do is realign the incentives and encourage through financial incentives, healthcare providers to now have a financial interest in improving the health of communities. 
you could structure a financial payment so that uh, healthcare providers get paid more um, if the communities in which they draw their patients from have lower obesity rates, lower smoking rates, higher high school graduation rates, um, lower disparities. There are any number of ways to structure incentive payments um, at the community level that would give the healthcare provider an incentive to participate in prevention at the community level. However, any change on the policy level would have to be accompanied by a change on the psychological level. Without an explicit guarantee in the Constitution, how should we fundamentally think about health? Health is an investment, um, and I think we've treated it as an expenditure. And that's the wrong way to understand you know, what it is we're trying to achieve as a society. The healthier we are, the more productive we are. The healthier we are, the less we have to spend on downstream uh, damage control. Things like emergency rooms, long-term care, and in some cases, even in the criminal justice system and in social services. So a healthy population is one of the best investments that a society can hope to have, because at the end of the day, it's cheaper to essentially have healthy people than it is to have sick people. The problem is we've treated health as an expenditure. It's something that we think of after the fact, rather than something that we think of, you know, as an investment before the fact. And at the end of the day, that's what's going to have to change in the society in order for us to be able to essentially catch up, because we're far behind the rest of the belt world. We're actually quite far behind. Um, if we want to catch up and be able to essentially compete, we're going to have to restructure our healthcare system and take it out of the frame of a sick care system and actually have it live up to a concept of an actual health care system that invests, prevents, and has the incentive to maintain wellness at the population level. In order to make the kind of conceptual changes that Tony mentions, it might be more strategic then to move beyond the national legislative frame altogether. I think that this is not about the next big federal health care law. Um, and I think we are in the midst, obviously, of a very fraught national discussion about a federal health care law. I think at this moment, this is about really beginning to shift the conversation in this country and have it be much more accountable to, for example, what those women in Charlotte, North Carolina understand as necessary for their health. And what we are seeing is you know, a growing and I think pretty extraordinary degree of leadership, um, in particular at the state level, You know, red states, blue states, purple states, that are really, you know, states are required to live with the realities of their citizens' lives. They're forced to make those like very difficult trade-offs at a policy level between the next, you know, spending the next healthcare dollar and spending the next education dollar, for example. And um, what we are seeing is that states are really beginning to look for creative ways to weave together their healthcare dollars with dollars, for example, that enable access to healthy food or access to transportation, recognizing that um, it's at that level of impact that they can really begin to, we to, to sort of weave together systems that can actually generate health for communities. Beyond moving from the national level to the state and local level, 
We also spoke to Rebecca about reimagining who the actors in this space should be. Who holds the responsibility for health? Even though we may think that policymakers are at the center of the system, there are a lot of other people ready to tackle this issue if we can figure out exactly how to mobilize them. So many of the tools and opportunities for us to be able to both shift the conversation but actually make different choices, you know, are ones that are in the hands of the leadership of health systems, of payers in this country, secretaries of health and human services, state medical societies. And you know, I think a lot of our belief is that there's an unaccounted for engine for change across all of those diverse actors that with a shared vision and understanding of what actually drives health, we may be able to, um, you know, significantly significantly accelerate this country towards um, towards better health outcomes without waiting for the next federal law to, you know, somehow magically make us whole in this area. When we talked to Rebecca about how to actually do this work, she immediately mentioned the importance of language to shift the conversation. Drawing from some of the lessons of marriage equality and just the arc of that trajectory, one of the real inflection points in marriage equality was a shift from talking about the right to marriage to the freedom to marry the person you love. And one of the sort of untold stories of the of the movement was that um, in, in 2004, when, there, when marriage equality had faced a whole string of losses in states across the country, um, many of them legal, they began doing focus groups with Iowa farmers. And they asked the Iowa farmers, you know, is there a right to marry? And they said, absolutely not. But they said, but you should have the freedom to marry. And you know, I think that that shift is revealing of who we are as a country, right? The truth is we are, and I think have always been, deeply ambivalent about rights and embracing of freedoms. We found Rebecca's point about ambivalence around rights to be both incisive and provocative. After all, we started this podcast because we anticipated that adopting the language of rights and responsibilities would be an effective way to engage in conversation around contentious topics. But perhaps there's value in thinking about new language that might resonate more deeply as we try to explore what the social contract needs to include. For Rebecca, reframing the conversation ultimately comes down to freedom and opportunity. How do we ensure that people have the freedom and the opportunity to be healthy? When we really think about deep and long-term impact, we need to find pathways to be able to articulate what we all believe to be true. And so the next phase of my work after Health Leads is really around trying to extend that the work that Health Leads began, you know, if Health Leads work was around really proving that it is actually possible in clinic on Tuesday to ask a patient if they're running out of food at the end of the month and be able to do something about it. The next phase of work is how do we really ensure that as a country, when that patient says, yes, I'm running out of food at the end of the month, that we as a society have both designed our healthcare system and designed the resources and communities so that we're able to act on what that patient needs to be healthy. And how do we begin to have that conversation together as a country, which again, I think folks are in many ways yearning to have because they know it's the one that's true to their own lived experience. We would 
would love to hear your thoughts on what health means to you, how we should think about where the boundaries of the healthcare system should be, and how health should play a role in the American social contract. As we do with every episode, we've included some sources on our website if you're interested in reading more about this issue or learning more about our guests. And please stay tuned for our next episode on April 11th, in which we'll explore the concept of education. As always, thanks to our producer, Mareva Lindo, and to Annie Swanson-Nystrom for our artwork. The music you heard on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org, follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast, and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message at 617-528-0708. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback we've received so far. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jastrasaria, and this is Breached. <laughs>